backed up back there. I don't know. It is good to uh, be here at the Buford Church of Christ. It's been a while since I've been able to uh, be here in, in your number, and especially in this uh, place of speaking. And I appreciate the invitation that was uh, given to me. A lot of family that are uh, here. Well, all of you are family, but some of you are closer than others because I've known you for such a long time, and it's good to uh, for Janine and I to come here and, and see you and, and be with you and, and, and be a part of your uh, summer series. Thank you for that confidence that you have uh, in us to be with you. Tonight I've been signed a subject that I think is, if not a predominant theme uh, throughout the New Testament, maybe the predominant theme throughout the New Testament. You might say it's a theme or at least a, 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 something that you can find on every page of the New Testament. So it would be my guess that I've nothing to tell you that you haven't heard before. If it's that much of it said in the New Testament, your preachers, your elders, your teachers, your own Bible studies have told you everything I'm going to tell you tonight so we can just close it off right here and go home, right? That's the way it's supposed to work, but it probably won't. You've heard this lesson before. The lesson has to do with humility. The lesson has to do with being a servant. If there is a master, there must be a what? There must be a, a servant. Not as uh, an event, not humility and service as an event, but humility and service as a way of life. That's what we signed on for when we became Christians, yes? That's what we signed on for when we became Christians, yes? Yes. We signed on for, whether we realized it at that time or not, as we have become disciples of Christ, as we have studied further into the text and learned more about who Jesus is and the way that he came to talk, we understand that we signed on to become servants humble servants, not just to be a humble servant and do this or do that, but be humble servants as a way of being, a way of life. And that's why this is such a strong emphasis throughout the New Testament. If that's what Jesus is calling us to do, calling us to be, then you're going to find it a lot in the New Testament. I think maybe the Holy Spirit knew how strong the pull of the flesh is against us and against this way of teaching. The flesh does not pull us toward humility. The flesh does not pull us toward sacrifice and service as a way of living. It may allow you to do a humble thing. It may allow you to be a servant on an occasion, but being that, that being the state of who you are is not something the flesh pulls us to. And so the Spirit is trying to draw us with the Word of God to learn to be this, to learn to be that. The 12 disciples, the chosen, they struggled with this. And that's why in the Gospels you'll find Jesus keeping it before them because they needed this lesson. At the end of his earthly ministry, 
we'll find that even they, after three years of constant teaching from the Savior himself, they still struggled with the concept of humility and service as a way of life, as a state of being. In your summer series, you have talked about many titles that Jesus wore over the last few weeks. He is the Alpha and the Omega. I wish I had been here to be a part of that study. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one for whom the world was waiting for thousands of years. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the chief cornerstone, the Prince of Peace. He is the Son of Man. And you'll find in further studies that he is the son of God, he is the son of David, he is the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life, the bread of life, the water of life. There are so many titles that we could uh, look at tonight, but I've been assigned with the one of Jesus as master. I don't know if you expected a sermon or a Bible class or what, but I prepared somewhat for a Bible class slash sermon. So I'll ask a question, and if you feel appropriate to do so, feel, uh, respond. What is your first thought, Bible context, outside of Bible context, when you hear the word master, what is your first thought? Anybody? Say it again. Authority. Someone who has authority. Master. First thought. Say it again. Someone that you're, you're subject to. My first thought when I heard the word, or when I hear the word uh, master is, master, the tempest is raging. How's that go? The billows are tossing high. That's one of the first thoughts that comes to my mind when I think of master. And I don't think of it outside of the biblical context much because I, I'm more acquainted with the, the Bible. But there are a lot of things that come to people's mind when we think of the term master, when you think of master from a biblical context, what are some places that you can think of in the Bible, in the New Testament, wherein Jesus was called master? This term was applied to him. Can you think of any? I heard something. That's right, the one out of that song that I was just... Uh, referring to where they, the disciples said, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? That's one of the ones that comes to my mind. Kyle uh, sent me a, a list of scriptures that he, might, he thought I might want to consider. Uh, he didn't bind me to them, but I will look at uh, some of them. On his list, he found there was a passage in Luke chapter 5 where it says, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Who's speaking there? Anybody remember? Peter. Who's speaking there? Anybody remember? Peter, that's right. And he was who was speaking to him? Who had told him to let down your nets on the other side? Jesus, a carpenter, speaking to Peter, a fisherman. You're going to tell me how to fish? This is what I do. This is how I make my living. You're going to tell me how to fish? He didn't say that, did he? He said, Master, what's he doing? He's recognizing the authority that Tom spoke of. It ain't what I think I ought to do. I've been fishing all night. I know how to do this, but at your word, because your master, I will let down 
the net. In Luke chapter 8 is where we read where the disciples asked him or came and asked him, Master, do you not care that we're perishing? And there you already know the text we, as we spoke about it. He arose and he did what? He commanded the waves and the winds to what? Be still and they did what? They did. <laughs> yeah, I'm calling him master. If he can command the waves, you know, if a guy can command his kids to do something, that's pretty good if they do it. But here's a guy who commanded the waves and the, the winds to be still, and they did at his word. Master is a good word. In that same chapter, in Luke chapter uh, 8, it says, Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those who uh, were with him said, Master, the multitudes are thronging you, and you ask who touched you? You get an extra five points if you can tell me the name of the person who touched him. Anybody know? Five points? No one? Well, you're right. We don't know the name. She's, the name her name's not given. We do know, do know what's wrong with her. What's wrong with her? She had an issue of blood for uh, 12 years. Then uh, there was the time that Peter said, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. Who were the people that Peter was going to build three tabernacles for? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. All right. Funny thing about that particular text, and I hadn't really paid attention to it until I was looking at these passages that uh, Kyle gave me. Luke says that Peter was out of his head when he said that. He didn't know what he was talking about. I thought that's pretty bold of Luke to say that about Peter, that he didn't know what he was saying. Anyway, Luke 9, 49, it says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Who said it? Anybody? John said it. Very good. Five points for you. And for the grand prize, who can tell me who said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us? Anybody? No grand prize? Who was it? Not the demons. There were ten lepers who came to Jesus and they said they were begging him, uh, Master, have mercy on us. While I was looking up these passages that uh, Kyle suggested and a few others that contain the word uh, Master, I found something uh, that I had not paid attention to uh, before. So I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to teach this lesson because it gave me something that I hadn't seen. And depending on the version that you use of the uh, Bible, the English word master is translated by six different Greek words in the New Testament. I didn't know that. Uh, I figured it was just one word. I hadn't paid attention, but I figured it was just one word. But in my, I'm using the New King James Version, and there are six different uh, Greek words that are translated as master. The one is didaskalos. I probably pronounced it wrong, but that's okay. I don't speak Greek. It's translated as master in some occasions. Most occasions the word is translated as teacher. Matthew and Mark both use this word almost exclusively when referring to Jesus. Another word 
that's used is the word Rabboni. It's not Greek, it's actually Hebrew, but it's used a couple of times in the New Testament in reference to uh, Jesus. It means teacher, just like didaskalos means teacher, but this is the Hebrew form of that word. Maybe from the Hebrew's perspective, it's a more honorable title than is just the word uh, teacher. But when John, in John 20, verse 16, he tells us that Rabboni is the same as saying master or didaskalos, which is teacher. Probably uh, it is true that the disciples use this word in reference to Jesus, while the Pharisees and the masses would probably just use the word didaskalos. The next one's a hard one. It's kathagetes, which means chief guide. In Matthew, Jesus uses this word of himself on two occasions, and he tells us, never use this word for anybody else. I thought that was interesting. But it's translated as master, at least in my New Testament. And then there's the word kurios. If you know anything about Greek studies, you'll know that that's usually translated as Lord. But on one occasion, it's translated as master of the house in one of Jesus' parables. And it's the word that, or a word that Paul uses in Colossians and Ephesians interchangeably with, it's, it's translated as Lord and or uh, master. That next one. Despotes comes from, or we get our word despot from that. It means absolute power, sovereign Lord. Peter, Jude, and John at the end of our New Testaments all use this term in a limited sense in reference to Jesus. And then there's the word epistates, uh, which means one who stands over. And this is the word that Luke uses almost exclusively when he's speaking of Jesus. And in my New Testament, it's translated as master. Whatever word it is that you use uh, that's translated as master, the term master, I think we can agree, is deserved or rightfully belongs to Jesus, yes? Master uh, who, who uh, calms the sea, master who knows more about fishing than the fisherman uh, does. He is the, the master. We sing a song sometimes called Master of Everything. And John pictures him in John chapter 1 as the one who created everything. He is the God of creation, right? Remember that? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and he created all things, all things were created by him. We have to be careful how we put English meanings on these Greek words and the context in which we uh, find them. For example, that word despot. Despotes. The word despot in English is a pretty negative word, right? We think of a, a, a bad ruler, a, but it, it actually means a sovereign ruler, one who has all authority, but it's applied to Jesus, not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. You might recall in the book of Revelation it says, and they cried out with a loud voice. The they is the, are the souls who are up under the altar, the souls who have been slain for the cause of Christ. They were under the altar and they were crying out to the Lord, the Master, despotes, holy and true, how long until you avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? And the apostles and the early church also used this word despotes when they were referring to the Lord or to the master. Um, just after in Acts chapter 4 when uh, 
the, the apostles had been released by the Jewish rulers and they went back to their own, the, the, the apostles did, and they told them all that had taken place and they sang out a song or a prayer saying, Lord, or despotes, you are God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is. I want us to think as, of Jesus as master while we consider the kingdom, the kind of kingdom that he came to build. And I hope that by doing so, we will learn a thing or two about what it means to be master in the sense in which Jesus bore the term. And it's not always what we're prone to think when we hear that word. In our American context, the term master really has a very negative, a very ugly meaning when you go back a, a couple of hundred years. It's rooted in slavery, and we, we don't like that term from that perspective. But we can't, I don't want us to apply American history to the history of our Lord and to the name that he wore, the title that he wore when he wore the name Masters. As disciples, you and I know that Jesus' kingdom, its values and how it operates is often very much upside down to the kingdoms of this world, what they value and how they operate. So if Jesus is called master in that kingdom, we're going to find out that it doesn't really have the same idea as master in some of the kingdoms of, of this world. Now, to be clear, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What he means by that is if you don't accept my upside-down kingdom, my upside-down way of doing things, by upside-down mean completely different from the ways of the world, if you don't accept my standard here, then you can't be a part of my kingdom. And I want us to understand that as clearly as I can can make it, that we must learn this. This is why it's on every page of the New Testament, him teaching us the way of Christ and how different that way is than the ways of this world. We must understand this. This is a fundamental teaching and we must understand it to become or be a disciple. And that's why Jesus spent so much time teaching about it, both by word and deed. So in that light, if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to open with me to John chapter 13. I'll have the scriptures on the screen behind me in the New King James Version. I want us to turn to a passage here where Jesus demonstrates a very unmasterly character when you think of the term from the world's perspective. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he did what? He rose from the supper, he laid aside his garments, 
He took a towel, girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he had girded himself. I want you to do two things here. One, I want you to visualize what Jesus must have looked like when it says there that he took his garment, he laid aside his garments and he took on a towel. What did Jesus look like there? I Googled this, this passage. A lot of times you can Google a passage of scripture and you go to images there when it gives you pictures and it'll show you pictures of Jesus, the pictures of whatever that uh, might have been in that text. And all the pictures that I saw of Jesus washing feet, he was not dressed as John describes in here. What does it say that John or Jesus did? He disrobed himself, laid aside his garments, and he took on a, a, a towel. He girded himself with a towel. I want you to see him like that. It's important that you see him as John describes him there. What does he look like? In your mind's eye, what does Jesus look like as he's dressed in the manner that John has described him here? A what? A servant. A slave. As you would typically imagine a servant or slave, this is what Jesus looked like, and he wanted to look like that in this context. Number two, what I want you to do here is pay attention to what Jesus knows. It's important that we see why John begins this story about the foot washing in the way that he did, emphasizing what Jesus knew about himself. What does Jesus know about himself? Several things that we won't have time to go into this evening, but the, the highlighted part there on the verse says he knew what? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things into his hands. What is all things? Is that most things, few things, this thing and that thing? What is all things? All things are put in, how much authority does Jesus have? All authority, all things have been put into his hand. Jesus knows that. In this context, that's important. Jesus knows that he had come from God. What does that mean? How do we understand this concept of he had come from God? Did he come from God like Moses did? Did he come from God like Elijah did? More than that, yes. He came from God. He was God. He became flesh, but he was God. He had come from God. He knew that about himself in this context. He knew that all things had been given to him, and what else did he know about himself? He's going back to God. Now that's who Jesus is. That's what he knows about himself. And what does he, as the, the Son of God, the one who is the greatest not only in the world, but the greatest in this room, what does he do? He voluntarily gave up that or did not grasp hold of that honor that would ordinarily be given to someone of his position. He voluntarily gave it up to serve others. This is our master, our Lord, our example, yes? And what did he do? He gave up did not cling to, grasp hold of, tenaciously, the position that he had, who he was, in order that he might serve another. The Holy Spirit begins this story in this way, I think, at least in part, so that you and I would understand that when Jesus, the next morning, takes up his cross 
is literally crucified, that he is doing so just as voluntarily as he took up that towel and washed those disciples' feet. The next day, on that cross, he is bowing before us 2,000 years later, washing our dirty feet. Master did that. He did that because in his kingdom, that's what master means. Now going back to that room, can you imagine the disciples who've been walking with Jesus these three years, when he takes off his robe, girds the towel, and he starts walking over toward that pitcher. They saw that pitcher when they came into the room, that, that bowl of water with which someone should have washed the other's feet. They saw it there, all of them ignored it, because why? They were too good to do that. And so can you imagine the shock on their faces when they saw Jesus dressing himself down, dressing himself as a, as a servant, and he goes to get that, and then he gets before them on his knees washing. Can you see them? Can you see their faces? Can you feel whatever it is they might have been feeling with Jesus, their master, at their feet as a servant? You call me teacher, the word is didaskalos, oftentimes translated as master. You call me teacher, you call me a master and Lord, and you well say, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your didaskalos, teacher, master, if I have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. The Holy Spirit We'll use this incident as a climax, a, a high point of Jesus' time with his disciples, his final and his greatest lesson to them. You think he's still speaking to us today? Is this just for Peter, Andrew, James, and John? No. I don't think it's a coincidence that just before Jesus washes their feet in, the upper, in, in this room here, Luke records in Luke chapter 22, same context, same time frame, Luke records this. Now there was a, also a dispute, I think it's there, yes, also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's not funny, but it's kind of funny in the context, right? They're arguing about who should be the greatest and Jesus already has in his mind, I'm going to wash their feet because I'm their master and that's what I do. Anyway, there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest and he said to them, that is Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, the nations, exercise lordship over them and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But, say it with me, but what? Not so among you. Who is you? My disciples. My kingdom. That's the way the nations do. But not so among you. On the contrary, in my kingdom, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. He who governs as one who serves. For who is greater... 
he who sits at the table or he who serves? This comes from a worldly perspective. He's asking that question. In the world, who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at the table? He's the greater one, yes. But Jesus says, yet I am among you as one who... Can y'all read it there in the yellow? I am among you as one who... Master serving. Jesus, I think, is telling them that it is their own worldly ambitions, their own insecurities that make them want to strive with each other, seeking for positions of power. Their own insecurities that keep them from being what Jesus is teaching them, humble, submissive servants. And I think Jesus is telling them once again, you need to get over that. Just like Peter would tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2, you need to take that off, lay that aside. You can't be that have that heart, have that attitude, and be in my kingdom. Put it down. That's not a part of who we are. Jesus, understanding who he was, understanding that God had given him all authority, all power, understanding that he came from God, was going to God, he did not need the accolades that, that, that accompany that worldly, those worldly positions of power. You call me master, and so I am, but I'm serving. As the greatest to ever have set foot in this world, Jesus did not need a pecking order beneath him. He could easily humble himself to wash feet. He could easily humble himself to die a death on a cross in order to wash our feet. You see, I needed something. I was dead in my sins. And Jesus says, I can help that. I can be obedient to the death on the cross in order that you might have life. He washed my feet. Amen? And that, I think, is the lesson that he's teaching the disciples there in John chapter 13. Not simply that he did it, but as his disciples, we must do it. In John 13, going back there, he says in verse 6, Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you don't understand it now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, What? I don't wash you. You have no part with me. What's he say? This is what my kingdom is, Peter. You want to be a part of it? This is what it takes. It's funny that John did not record any outward response 
from any of the other 12 until we get, he gets to Peter, which is no real surprise. We're accustomed to Peter being the one who, who speaks out. Uh, I've often wondered what Judas must have been thinking when Jesus came to his feet. The devil already had been put into his heart that he would betray Jesus. He'd already accepted the money. He knew what he was going to do. And his master is at his feet in humble service. We have sinned terribly, some of us more than others, in more terrible ways than others. But on that cross on that day, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how awfully you've sinned, how long you were in it, Jesus was at your feet to make you whole, to make you clean. At first, Peter refused it. Maybe he's ashamed to, to have his master washing his feet after he had just quarreled with the other disciples that I'm the greatest. Maybe he refused because he did not, this did not fit his idea of what master should be. Peter was from the world. He thought in worldly terms. The Lord, Lord was working on that, but still, Peter's thinking is this, this is the guy who has the power. He's the guy who should have his ring kissed, his feet washed, and yet he's here washing mine. So Peter refused. Unfortunately, after all that Jesus had said and done, even the washing of feet, he recognizes that they would not fully comprehend this until later. And I think even today, 2,000 years later, many of us, we don't pay attention to what's happening here. We don't understand Master being a servant. And if that's what he is, what must we be? Would God that those who claim to be his disciples today would get what Jesus is teaching in this text, what Jesus is showing in this text. If we would grasp what he's saying here, not only here, but throughout the New Testament, we could turn the world upside down. Yes, it's happened before, it can happen again. But we're not turning the world upside down. We are trying to be as much like the world as we possibly, still, possibly can and still call ourselves religious or Christian. And the world sees that. And so the world doesn't change. It has no motive or need to change. You call yourselves the people of God. You're just like us. Why should we change? Brothers and sisters, the reason the world does not understand the church today lies at the feet of those who claim to be in the church, who refuse to accept the way of the kingdom. If we don't get it, how can they? Right? Don't mean to be blunt, but 
Sometimes it has to be bluntly stated. If we don't get it, we'll never be able to show it to the world. Verse 12 says, So when he had washed their feet, taken the garments, and sat down, he said to them, Do you understand or know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, uh, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So we, we see the twelve on more than one occasion fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to be on the left hand, who's going to be on the right. And we look at them and say, you guys just don't get it. That's petty. How can you be with Jesus for so long and you're still doing this? You ought also to love one another. It was going to be a hard pill to swallow for someone who wanted to be on the right hand. The one who wanted to be the boss of the other twelve. It's going to be a hard pill to swallow. At the same time, we find it just as difficult today to assume that position of a servant. To be the one who will grab the towel. To be the one who will grab the bowl. Having read the scriptures, we know it's right. But I've been in the church so many years. I've put in my time. Somebody else needs to. Have you ever thought it? You ever said it? I've heard it said. I don't know if you have something to put into that blank. But if you do, whatever it is, if anything can go in that blank in your mind, then you still yet do not understand what Jesus did and what he was teaching. We need to understand that this was not their peer who got before them and washed their feet. This was their Rabboni, their Lord, their Master, the Son of God. From everyone's perspective, it wasn't right. It was upside down. This is not natural. And they could not have been more right about that. It's not natural. It's spiritual. It's supernatural. If I can be so bold as to say it, it is the way God intended it from the beginning. When he created us in his image, he created us to be foot washers. To have the heart of a foot washer. It's the way that God or Satan perverted with that damnable deceitful lie that for thousands of years we just keep on believing. In our world, if you go to a wealthy man's house, you need not expect that he's going to wash your feet. That's, that's not the way it works in our world. We don't even expect that he, he should. We don't do things that way. That's beneath his station. He shouldn't have to wash our feet. If you go to your neighbor's house, 
a man who shares the same basic status that you did, you do, the same station in life that you do. You, he, he does not offer to wash your feet when you come to his house, and nor do we expect him to because that's just not how things work. That's not how we do things. Now, if I go to some far country, Jamaica, China, Africa, wherever it is, and it's a place where I think those people, well, they just don't measure up to the same kind of person or people that we are. And if they ask to wash our feet, we'll let them. Why? Well, because they're beneath us. That's how we've been trained to think in this world. People who are beneath you, they do the chores that are beneath you. So if you at church say, well, I'm not going to do that. So-and-so needs to do that. They haven't earned their way yet. They need to do that. I've been in the church too long to do that. then we don't get it. We're still contending for prestige. Jesus, as Master and Lord, as foot washer extraordinaire, as dyer on the cross, would have us learn that the world would work a lot better if we operated on wisdom that comes from above, that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, rather than wisdom that comes from below, which is earthly, sensual, and demonic, and causes our hearts, James says, to be filled with what? Bitter envy and self-seeking. Which wisdom are we following? We're not talking literally about foot washing, are we? We're talking about those who are deemed as spiritually inferior, having their feet washed by those who are great in the kingdom. We need to consider that knowing that we have been saved by God, knowing that we are the ones who have been spiritually cleaned and are mature, knowing that we are, as Peter says, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, we are nevertheless, Jesus says, or Peter says, to have our conduct honorable among the nations. We are to make sure that they, when they speak of, against us as evildoers, that they may, by our good works, even while they're speaking against us as evildoers, by our good works they will observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And therefore, we should do what? In a very powerful sermon, we don't like to study 1 Peter. I love it because I need it so badly. Peter says in a very 
demonstrable way. When they speak against you as evildoers, you live such a life that you show Jesus unto them. Therefore, submit yourselves. Submit yourselves as citizens to the governor. Submit yourselves as slaves to the master. Submit yourselves as wives to a, a husband that's not so great. We don't like those illustrations that Peter gives because <laughs> we're above that. Peter says, if you want to show them Jesus, if you want to reveal Jesus unto them, submit yourself unto them. All oh, that won't work, says who? Says you who have been deceived by the lie? God says it'll work. And we say we what, God? We trust God. We believe God. Or is that only something we conveniently do when we agree with God? What does it involve to be a foot washer? Well, it involves us getting off our thrones. It involves us getting over our uppity selves, getting off of our high horses. It involves us getting out there and rolling up our sleeves and helping people, all people, not just our people or our kind of people, but all people who need God's service. We are the ones that God has chosen to provide his service, service, servants to the world. Jesus says, you're right to call me Lord. Remember how Jesus got the title Lord? I know Lord is not my subject, but I'll close with this thought. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it to be robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself even to the death on the cross. Therefore God, because he humbled himself obediently to the death on a cross, therefore God also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. What name did he give him? Lord. Master. Why? because he was an obedient servant. Peter says it, Jude says it, Jesus teaches it over and over again. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and what? You can sing it, y'all know it, right? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You don't lift yourselves. Don't compete for the high-raising jobs. You go out there and wash feet. Whoever needs cleansing, whoever needs help, whoever needs assistance, whoever needs to see the face of God in their lives from you, you go out there and do that, he'll lift you up. We do that because we are right to call him master, for so he is. Tonight, if all of this is gibberish to you, if you have no clue what I'm talking about, if this just doesn't make any sense at all, then the elders here, 
want to talk to you. The congregation here wants to talk to you, want to help you understand what this gibberish means. And I understand that we don't have time tonight to sort all of this out. If you're coming straight out of the world and this just sounds like it's, I don't understand, then let us help you. Let this congregation, this family here help you. If you understand that Jesus is Master and Lord and you want to be a servant like he is, you want to be a part of who he came to be, he says, I'll take away your sins. Trust me, follow my way, follow my teachings, be washed in your, the, my, my blood and baptism, I'll take away all your sins and you'll be made holy. And you'll learn how to be a servant, exalted by God. That's the Lord's invitation for you and I. If you have made that conviction but, or confession but have failed, the invitation is still extended that you might come home and be restored to your faith and become once again a disciple in training to be a servant like your master. If you're subject to that invitation, we bid you come all together.